Good morning, everybody. Um, during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today's topic is More Coal, Viewer Parks, the future of Alberta's Rocky Mountains, with our speaker joining us from Calgary today, Katie Morrison. Katie is a professional biologist who has been working in, in the environmental sector for almost 20 years. She holds a BSc in Environmental and Conservation Science from the University of Alberta and a Master's of Environmental Design from the University of Calgary. Katie has worked in Canada and Latin America for university research projects, non-governmental organizations and environmental consulting companies. Katie has an in-depth understanding of conservation, ecology, stakeholder consultations and mitigating the environmental impacts of human development. Katie's academic and professional experience allows her to work on designing adaptive management solutions towards achieving landscape conservation and healthy communities in southern Alberta. Katie spends her free time gardening, fishing, creating textile arts, traveling and exploring wild places with her dog. And I think I just heard your dog there growling in the background a little bit. So the dog may take an... Um... Hopefully he'll behave. Yeah. Excellent. Katie, we're looking forward to your presentation. Great. Thank you. Uh, so before I start, I, I do want to acknowledge that I'm coming from you from um, Mokinstis, now called Calgary, and that um, I live and work in Treaty 7, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina at Stony Dakota, um, and is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, and now home to uh, Indigenous people from all over the world. Um, Annalise did a great job of introducing uh, me, but you know, my background is quite varied and and I've worked uh, across Alberta in various uh, topics and in, in social science, in wildlife work, um, and did work in environmental impact assessment for about eight years for oil and gas projects, including several large oil science projects in the north. Uh, but I've always been torn between the natural and social sciences. Um, so my, my master's degree is more in that social science in environmental design looking at aspects of conservation and resource management, focusing on understanding communities' relationship with conservation and protected areas, both the benefits and the tension of that. And I've now been with CPODs about eight years as the conservation director, uh, leading all of our projects and campaigns in Southern Alberta, which allows me to use both that, that hard science and that social science backgrounds to work on conservation solutions. For those of you who are not familiar with, oh, sorry, next slide. Um, I'm going to forget that a lot, <laughs> um, and probably the next one. I think I skipped um, one to the CPAWS slide. Um, so for you, those of you who are not familiar with CPAWS, um, CPAWS is a nationwide conservation organization. Um, it was established in 1965 in our chapter in 1967. We have 13 local chapters across the country that work on grassroots, um, at the grassroots level to establish new protected areas ensure proper management of uh, parks and protected areas, and also on um, management of unprotected wilderness areas 
to prioritize nature and low-impact human use. So in southern Alberta, we've been involved in the creation of the Elbow Sheep, Bow Valley, Bob Creek Wildlands, the Black Creek Heritage Rangeland, and more recently the Castle Wildland and Provincial Parks. We've also been heavily involved in um, the land use planning processes in Alberta, including input into the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan, the Sub-Regional Plans, Managing Roads and Trails, and Comprehensive Recreation Plans in Southern Alberta. Next slide. So this is kind of the reaction that we get when um, people hear about the proposed coal developments um, in the Rocky Mountains. So in this presentation, I'm going to talk a bit about how we got here and what the key environmental issues are surrounding coal mining and that risk-benefit trade-off that, that we have to consider. Um, and also how we can all get involved in the public conversation about new coal in southern Alberta. The title also mentioned parks. I'm going to talk a little bit less about that. Um, but I'm happy to talk, answer those questions at the end. But I am going to talk a little bit about how the parks issue um, in Alberta also ties in with coal. Next slide. So since 1976, um, we've had what is called uh, a, a policy for development of coal in Alberta, or the coal policy. And this is guided development of, of coal, not just um, the where, but royalties, benefits, conditions, authorizations, and who and how benefits um, stay within Alberta. That included zoning that restricted open pit coal mining and coal exploration in some of Alberta's most sensitive um, areas. And at the time it was created with extensive public consultation to create a fair balance between environmental protection, economic development, and the social needs of Albertans. So we currently have eight operating coal mines in Alberta. Um, but then on June 1st of this year, the government canceled or rescinded that policy, so it no longer exists. And they did that without any public consultation with Albertans. Although we now know that at least seven months to a year before canceling that policy, they were having conversations with coal companies. Next slide. So I mentioned uh, the land use zoning and the coal policy essentially had four zones in the province. Uh, the first zone, category one, was completely off limits, and the government has said that they will maintain that, that there will be no uh, coal in zone one. But we're still looking into what they, the protective notation that they placed on that area and whether it actually protects um, those areas from coal or not compared to the coal policy. But the area that was most affected by the cancellation of the, of the policy was category two which previously had strictly controlled exploration and prohibited all open pit mining. And this area covers about 1.5 million hectares of our source water areas. If you go to the next slide, it should highlight those um, in Alberta. And it's now the area we are seeing the most new coal activity. Uh, categories three and four were largely areas that already had coal de developments prior to the coal policy. Um, but they also include some very environmentally and socially important areas, and we'll talk a bit about a few of those areas um, in the presentation. Next slide. So for southern Alberta, uh, the area that we're really talking about is the headwaters of the Old Man River. Uh, and just a reminder of the importance of this area, this is the area that does provide water to most of southern Alberta and, and the Canadian prairies. Um, it's important wildlife habitat, including for species at risk. 
It is important foothills grassland and montane forest ecosystems, provides connectivity for wildlife to move through those areas, especially moving um, north-south between the castle parks and Kananaskis. It has a lot of uh, recreation opportunities for um, all types of recreational users. And it, and it also supports local communities in all the ways above, through the water supply, through recreation values, um, but also in really um, hard uh, economics, including supporting ranching, agriculture, recreation industries um, in local communities. Next slide. Um, these are just uh, a few photos. Uh, if you're not really familiar there with the area of, of what we're looking at, if you can go to the next one. The next one. And the next one, which should be a map. Um, so since the cancellation of the coal policy, Australian mining companies have quickly moved into this area. Um, they're now actively building hundreds of kilometers of roads, um, drilling test pits, uh, and applying for mine approvals in these ecologically sensitive areas. So you can see um, in the top area, uh, there are the exploration permits have been approved for two applications in there for Cabin Ridge and um, Atrium Elan coal exploration. The next one down is also um, an Atrium uh, application that they are well underway for exploration. Then the darker red one uh, on the lower uh, in the BC border, uh, that's Tent Mountain. Tent Mountain um, was in coal policy four. Um, and it was never actually closed. It was an, an old mine that was never actually closed. And my understanding is that because it was never closed, it actually doesn't have to go through the environmental impact assessment process to reopen. Uh, and then the last one, um, which I guess is actually the first one, is, is Grassy Mountain. So that dark red one um, in the southeast there. And that's the uh, Benga's Grassy Mountain mine. That is the, the most furthest um, advanced in, in the process. Uh, and it was also in coal policy four, uh, but you know, from a water, trout, wildlife, livelihood perspective, that area is no less valuable than the surrounding category one and two areas. Next slide. So what exactly does open pit mountaintop uh, or mountaintop removal coal mining mean? Well, in our context, first, as I mentioned, the companies obtain exploration permits which involves building all of those roads and drill pits using stream water uh, through, for drill activities. And this happens before an environmental assessment is even completed, or in some cases before an, a lease is even obtained by the company. Once the mine goes through the regulatory process and is approved and moves forward, um, explosives and machinery are used to access the coal deposits. So essentially, as you can see, there's various coal uh, seams throughout the mountain and they take off the the overburden, the soil and rock to get to those coal seams. That creates a lot of waste rock, um, which is essentially piled in adjacent valleys um, and allowing them to get to those seams. Water is used to wash the rock and process uh, process the coal through. And then that water is put in, uh, in uh, containment sediment ponds or containment, containment ponds. So essentially the mountain comes down the valley comes up and you're left with um, a sediment uh, pond of, of often contaminated water. Next slide. So this is a big process. It sounds like a big process and it is, and it comes with some big risks and big impacts. So I'll walk you through each of 
um, these impacts in a little bit more detail. Next slide. So I already mentioned that the water is needed for processing. Um, and that is used for cleaning rock, getting the sediment across. Um, it, and this could affect water quantity downstream, both surface water and aquifer underground water, uh, affecting seep springs and wetlands. Uh, and besides the water needed for drilling, once the coal is cleaned and separated, it's dried, but not completely. So according to the environmental assessment for a grassy mountain, two to 9% of the water content remains in the coal when it is shipped, which is completely lost from the system. And that doesn't seem like a lot, um, but at mine capacity for Grassy Mountain alone, they're forecasting to produce 93 million tons of coal over its lifetime, which adds up to a lot of water lost from the system. And we know how water scarce Southern Alberta already is and can be, and how important water is not just for our personal use downstream, but the greatest part of irrigation activity in Alberta takes place in the nine irrigation districts that draw water from the Old Man River. Um, so any new coal mine would need to existing purchase existing water licenses or Alberta uh, Environment and Parks actually maintains some industrial allocation that isn't allocated uh, from the Old Man River. But it's really unclear how much water is available versus how much water these proposed mines are going um, to need through their life cycle. Next next slide. The second biggest water issue, or the second big water issue, is, is water quality and contaminants. Um, and there is more to show the, the risks of, of uh, water quality and contamination. So when the rock is dug up and dumped uh, into those, those piles, it exposes it to oxygen and water. And that releases um, a number of substances, including selenium, cadmium, nitrate, sulfate. Uh, but selenium is the one that we're finding in coal mining has a, a really big effect. So selenium is a naturally occurring element. It's found in coal deposits and geologic formations around coal. Um, but when it's exposed to that water in oxygen, um, it, it comes out in higher uh, quantities than wood through natural systems. And selenium uh, contamination can cause birth death defects and reproductive failure in fish um, and, and wildlife and jeopardize human health. Uh, and in fact, the first time I was fishing in the Elk River uh, in B on the BC side of the, of the border where there are an, a whole lot of coal mines, um, I caught a little cutthroat trout and was pulling it in and went down to pull it out. And the friend I was with who lived in that area said, check out those gills. And sure enough, the gill plate was deformed, which was one of the signs of selenium poisoning in in fish. It wasn't quite as bad as this photo, um, but it was a real shock and an impact for me to see the effect of that water contamination. And this can ha this can last for hundreds of years. There is no coal mine that has successfully contained or mitigated selenium contamination on site. We've seen some um, lab experiments that have been able to manage it, but we have never managed it on a coal mine. Next slide. Uh, and I mentioned the, the BC side. Um, tech has literally spent billions of dollars over many years to get a handle on the, the selenium contamination in the Elk River. But despite this, uh, community water supplies in the town of Sparwood and many private wells have been contaminated and can't be safely drunk. Fish have high levels of deformities, as we saw, uh, and recent downstream populations of fish experienced about a 90% collapse. Um, 150 kilometers downstream is Lake Cucanusa in Montana, and Lake Cucanusa has 
um, level of selenium twice the safe limit uh, from the from the Elk Valley coal mining. Um, and significant selenium levels are also being found in Kootenai Lake, 250 kilometers downstream. And only a quarter of the flow of the, of the Kukanusa Reservoir comes from the Elk River. So in this case, dilution has not been the solution to pollution. And this is almost inevitable that we will see a selenium issue um, in new mines in Alberta. Next slide. Just to put some of those numbers in comparison, um, the Old Man Dam, which is our, our reservoir, uh, for um, for water, gets most of it water from the Crow's Nest, Castle, and Old Man rivers, uh, with the Old Man and the Crow's Nest supplying about half. And that's only about 50 kilometers downstream from these mines. Uh, and Lethbridge is only another 75 to 100 kilometers uh, downstream. So we're looking at about that, that same um, distance and potentially uh, selenium transfer. Next slide. The next big impact is uh, habitat loss and fragmentation of habitat. And this is important for many species of sensitive plants and animals. Um, and I talked about the water contamination risk to native trout, but there's also a big risk of loss and degradation of key habitats. Um, the map there on the side is the mine um, and exploration footprint that I've been using overlapped with critical habitat for West Slope cutthroat trout and bull trout. Um, Wessel cutthroat trout is already down to 5% of his, its historic range. It has already lost 95% of the areas that it used to live. Um, so both from a, a water a sediment and water contamination perspective and habitat loss, this is a big risk. Next slide. Exploration and mine development um, will also affect other wildlife species. We often use grizzly bear and elk as indicators. Um, for other wildlife that have large, because they have large home ranges and need to move through the landscape. Um, so we can see here grizzly and elk, um, important habitats and movement areas, and, and the mines could um, really disrupt movement and affect uh, wildlife habitat for the life of the mine. Next slide. And as I mentioned, this is not just a future scenario if the mines are approved and built. Uh, right now, companies are in the exploration phase, building those hundreds of kilometers of roads and drilling test pits, creating disturbances on the landscape. In fact, Atrium Coal was twice approved this year to conduct exploration activities in, in critical goat and sheep, sheep habitat during the restricted activity window put in place to protect these species during sensitive times of the year. Both of these applications were approved by the Alberta Energy Regulator the same day the application went in providing us absolutely no time to um, provide comment or, or input on that decision. Hmm. Next uh, slide. Climate change, we've, we hear a lot about um, coal and, and fossil fuel contribution to climate change. Um, and while uh, the coal coming out of this area is metallurgic coal or coking coal, which is used for steel production, not energy generation, which has a slightly better uh, reputation, the mining, transportation, and burning of metallurgic coal is still incredibly carbon intensive. For every ton of steel uh, produced from metallurgic coal, two tons of greenhouse gases are generated. So approving these projects would really fly in the face of any national or international climate targets that Canada is hoping to achieve as a country. These disturbances also cause landscape disturbances that make, it less, um, make us less resilient to a, a changing climate. Next slide. 
Human health impacts um, are less studied and harder to study because you don't know, you can't study them until a, a mine is built and you're seeing the effects. But coal mining in Appalachia, where there is a lot of mountaintop, similar mountaintop removal mining, um, is associated with a set of serious health problems, uh, largely from the dust, um, uh, silica, sulfur, organic carbon, aluminum, iron, trace elements um, that people are, are breathing and and uh, absorbing. And the study found that this is not just the miners who are working in the coal uh, mines, it is the communities around the coal mines, irrespective of whether they are um, involved in, in the mining. And the data in some of these studies also show that the economic costs of the health problems in the Appalachian coal mining areas are more than five times greater than the economic benefits of mining. Next slide. So what about reclamation? We hear that as, as, a, as a solution to, to make us feel um, better. And yeah, they, they can put some back some of the soil, plant um, some grasses, plant some things back, but we can never actually restore these sensitive grasslands, montane or alpine ecosystems back to what they were before, supporting the same diversity of life. And you can't rebuild a mountain. The other piece of this is that is the time scale. Some of these species, like the native trout that I mentioned, that are already so threatened, may not have the time to wait for reclamation. Between the between the, the reclamation and the water contamination that could last hundreds of years, um, we just don't have the time to for these species to to wait around um, for areas to be reclaimed. Next slide. And we do have the Alberta Energy Regulator, and that's also another thing we hear of. Um, we have regulation, we have the AER looking, we didn't need the coal policy anyways. But there is nothing that replaces the coal policy. The Alberta Energy Regulator is not set up to do landscape level plan planning like the coal policy had to, to determine where projects are appropriate, but rather it's set up to assess risks or whether risks can be mitigated in areas already deemed appropriate or already deemed lower risk. The other piece is that the AER has been drastically cut. Uh, recently, timelines were improved, uh, were imposed on the AER to pass uh, projects, potentially limiting their rigorous review and stakeholder and public participation. So the removal of the coal policy actually really sets the AER and industry up to fail by forcing new projects into the AER process that should have never made it that far. It, it actually decreases industry certainty um, by through environmental risks and social risks by putting projects in risky places. Uh, the two, in 2019, the Auditor General of Canada um, also found that the mining industry was woefully under-regulated in Canada, probably part of what is attracting the foreign companies. We have seen in our uh, involvement in the exploration phase, really little oversight. I mentioned some of those applications being approved the same day, little opportunity for people to be involved in comment. So I have little confidence that the AER can uphold environmental protection mandate in the interests of environment and communities. Next slide. The economy brings jobs. Next slide. Um, so for decades, Alberta has relied heavily on non-renewable resources as a staple of our economy. Um, and this has allowed for unprecedented prosperity and growth, absolutely. 
but it hasn't come without costs. Environmental damages, uncertain boom and bust economies and, and the stress that that places on employees and communities, the legacy of environmental liability and cleanup costs. So betting on coal is another serious gamble. So proponents of coal mines say that it will bring jobs, <coughs> and they will bring jobs. They will bring some economic activity. But volatile prices, international market uncertainty, and the continued automation of the industry means that these projects are not the surefire job creators and sustainers that they once were. Jobs are often overstated and rely on vague statements of job creation um, without actual accurate estimates. And they don't take into account healthcare costs, municipal services, social strain on communities, um, and reliance on temporary work camps. They also undermine more diverse and sustainable economies. Uh, experts retain to examine, uh, external experts retain to examine the economic impact for Grassy Mountain uh, state that there's insufficient evidence to conclude that there will be a large or significant regional or provincial economic benefit uh, of the project. And this isn't about being anti-industry or even anti-coal. It's about looking at what, where, and how development is done. And in this case, it's being planned in areas long recognized for other social and environmental values and at a great risk. The benefits have to outweigh the cost for these projects to be viable. Economics, ecosystem services, risks to fish and wildlife, other values for land of the land, for tourism, recreation, ranching. Coal mining in Alberta, Southern Alberta, um, will not likely provide long-term sustainable benefits, but it does come with long-term real risks. Next slide. And looking further down the road, we can anticipate the massive public liability that these projects represent. Once markets drop, um, companies can no longer make a profit. We could be left with the bill to clean up the environmental damage as we've seen with coal mines around the world um, and other similar volatile commodities in Alberta. We do have the mine securities or mine financial securities program, and that's a program that uh, companies pay into so that in the case of bankruptcy, they, um, they, their costs for reclamation are already covered. But it's, it's, it's a flawed system. It fails to into, take into account that for resources like coal, which are volatile at the best of times, um, we're seeing a real shift in the international uh, market around uh, these types of resources, moving towards more renewable energy sources, even for metallurgic coal. Um, and and we could possibly see permanent collapse in prices. Coal mines of the, around the world have a history of bankrupting and leaving cleanup costs uh, to the government. And in, in as of last year, in our mine financial security program, um, it was estimated that we are sitting on $31 billion of cleanup costs, yet the program only has $2 billion in the fund. So this big gap of, of um, the fund versus what we have to clean up, and, and that's uh, like the orphaned and abandoned wells, we're really setting ourselves, or probably setting ourselves up for a major taxpayer liability. Um, Recently, the federal government put in $1.7 billion to clean up orphaned and abandoned wells. Last year, they put in $2.2 billion to clean up and reclaim abandoned mine sites in Northwest Territories and Yukon. It's a real risk. Next slide. So what are the benefits and to who? Well, I mentioned Australian mining companies who are at the forefront of the coal developments in Alberta's Rocky Mountains, who are actively out there exploring, drilling, 
uh, and planting these mountaintop removal coal mines. The companies uh, that are currently active uh, in the south uh, are Benga Mining, which is owned by Hancock Industries, which is owned by one of um, Australia's richest billionaires, Montem Resources, Elan Coal, and Cabin Ridge, which is also affiliated uh, with the Warburton Group, which is uh, another Australian billionaire. Further north, we know that Valerie Coal is, is moving into the Bighorn, and I expect um, fairly shortly we'll see um, more companies and more coal proposals in the near future. Once the coal is out of the ground, it's, it'll be shipped um, overseas, largely to Asi Asian steel making markets. So the, most of the projected economic value will flow out of Alberta and out of Canada, all the while undermining the existing and growing sustainable economies, affecting the livelihoods of ranchers, agriculturalists, outfitters, outdoor recreation industry and other land users. Next slide. So as we're shifting as a world and recovering from COVID-19, we're hearing increasing calls for a just and green recovery. We can't create a stable future from diversifying our economy from one high-risk non-renewable resource to two high-risk non-renewable resources. And that's not to say that resources have no place in our economy, present or future. But as I mentioned, they must be well-regulated in the right place, provide more benefits than risks, and not under, not undermine sustainable growth. Uh, recent calculations by economist at Corporate Knights, which is a, a group of um, corporate ca uh, Canadian companies advocating for um, responsible corporate behavior and removal of barriers to clean capitalism, found that for every $20 invested in green and just recovery, $307.85 would be contributed to Canada's GDP over the next 10 years. So nature conservation, nature-based climate solutions, and sustainable recreation and tourism should be part of that future sustainable and diversified economy. The sector has enormous potential to grow um, in Alberta and based on the protection of our natural amenities. Next slide. And we're seeing that the natural beauty supported by Alberta's parks and wilderness areas in the Southwest is already drawing national uh, and international uh, attention as a tourism destination. Um, it was recently named the in the global top 100 sustainable destinations. Um, and the region was also a top three finalist in the Best of America's Award for the 2020 Green Destinations Award as a place among global destinations that strives to be more sustainable for the benefit of travelers and local communities and to preserve, enhance, and celebrate our iconic character of place. Next slide. So I mentioned park, we'd get back to parks. Um, the, the government is proposing to, or has announced that they, they want to delist, remove protection from 175 of our, of our parks and protected areas in Alberta. 60 of these parks are within areas now open for coal mining. And to me, this indicates a really deeply concerning move from valuing these outdoor spaces for wildlife and for people to managing them for non-renewable resource values alone. And some of these places are my favorite places to go on this map. And it's not about me, um, but these are some of Albertans' favorite places to go to and wine, to connect with nature, to hike, camp, fish, and hunt in, in our um, public lands. And so it came as hard news to me and it came as hard news to a lot of people that we could be losing both these protected areas and opening new new mines. 
Uh, and we've seen an increased recreational use across Alberta this year, particularly in the Rocky Mountains um, and some of these areas that don't have protections or land use plans to accommodate such high use. And that's great that people are getting outdoors, but it also comes um, uh, with with some damage to sensitive places when we don't have those those plans in place. And that's the only situation that could become worse with the announced loss of parks, campgrounds, and new coal mines. Next slide. So we're at a crossroads. Alberta's voters and citizens have the largest stake and the biggest voice in whether our public lands are managed for long-term sustainable economies, a clean environment, and healthy communities, or for another short-term economic boom with long-lasting and far-reaching consequences. Next slide. So we're partnering with ranchers and landowners, including the Livingston Landowner Group and the Pekisco Group, um, who ranch and live and work in, in the region. We're working closely with recreation organizations, businesses, outfitters, scientists, other concerned citizens and conservation groups to protect these places from the flood of coal exploration and development in the Eastern Slopes. Um, we're working together to raise awareness uh, of impacts and how together we can protect these special places. Uh, we're also exploring some legal approaches. If you go to the next slide, um, including participation in the hearing for Benga's Grassy Mountain Mine. Uh, and a hearing is essentially a, a proceeding where a panel representing the Alberta Energy Regulator and the Federal Impact Assessment Agency of Canada gather information and determine uh, what the impacts of the project will be and whether it should be approved and in what conditions. So CBOS has formal intervener status to participate in the hearings, um, and we're recommending that Grassy Mountain not be approved. As part of this, we have engaged experts to critique the science, conclusions, and mitigations of the company's environmental impact assessment, um, and to define the clear environmental risks to this panel to for Albertans. And this is um, the first project, but it, it, if Grassy Mountain is approved, it signals to other companies that governments consider coal mining an appropriate use of this landscape, and it makes it more likely that the other projects will also move forward. So simply put, Grassy Mountain is the first domino in the line of potential coal mines that could change Albertans' water, uh, headwaters forever. So now, this summer, every time that I was down standing in my favorite streams and rivers, um, it, my heart really sunk thinking about the future uh, of this land. And it's too precious to let go without a fight. So I'm not a fighter, um, but I, I'm fighting, not, not against coal, not against industry, but for clean water, for native trout, for the fish and wildlife and the beautiful mountain peaks and the grass, grasslands and, and forests, and for a sustainable future for Alberta. So I encourage you all to learn more uh, about the, the coal issue, to get informed and share information, to write a letter to your MLA on the coal policy, to write a letter or call your MP asking to reject the Grassy Mountain mine, get involved with groups working on the mine issue, any of those groups that I, I mentioned, and donate to campaigns to, to help um, cover cover the campaign and the legal costs of those groups. But, but I encourage you all to get involved um, in the issue and in the conversation. So I can take any questions now. Lovely. Thank you for your presentation. Um, it seems like I have some vo 
some uh, issues with my audio. So I just want to make sure people can hear me. Um, so I'll just look for the chat to make sure people can hear my questions. The first question is from Ian Huddle. Um, if the minds were forced to be underground only, so if the minds were forced to be underground only, how would that affect the water supply versus open pit? That's a good question, and I'm, I'm not actually sure of the answer of that um, because I'm not a hydrologist, so I'd have to check with some of the hydrology experts that we're working with. Um, but I think it's a good point in that uh, under the coal policy in this region, these mines um, could have been underground mines, but I think just the cost and the, the um, ability to do that made them completely unfeasible until they said that they could do mountaintop removal. Um, but I will check with the hydrology folks, uh, and if you send me an email, I can follow up with you later. Excellent. Our next question is from Beth Mundo. The removal of the coal policy seems critical. Are there any current Are there any current lawsuits about the coal policy removal without consultation? I know there are some people exploring. Um, the exploring a lawsuit or essentially asking for a judicial review, asking a judge to say, could they have removed this without public consultation? One of the things that we've been looking at and other folks have looked at is under the land use planning process that has been in place since 2007, um, you know, many, many folks were involved in creating the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan. And to alter the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan, or the sub-regional plans that have been um, created out of that. The Land Use uh, Land Stewardship Act uh, says that you need to consult to change any of those things. So we and others have been looking, um, does this contradict what is outlined in our other acts and regulations that they really could not have removed it without consultation. So folks are looking at it um, and hopefully something will be moving forward. Batman Mandel has another follow-up question. Uh, doesn't the threat to our health go against the Charter? Any lawsuits on, on the horizon about that? I don't know of any, um, any of the health lawsuits being explored. Uh, I know organizations like Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment have been really concerned and looking into this um, as well, in part because of the health, effect, health effects. Um, but I think what happens a lot with these industry projects that cause health concerns is that um, it's really hard scientifically to very clearly link someone's health problem with a development. Um, and so I think a lot of times it has been really hard for anybody to hold industry accountable for these sort of broad, broad health issues for any individual health issue. Um, but it would be really interesting to explore that more. Both Leona Jacobs and Chris Stasiuk asked the same question. What renewable sources exist for metallurgical coal? And Chris just puts it a little different. Can you speak more on the renewable options available for met coal and steel making? Mm -hmm. It's definitely more complicated than thermal coal. So. Um, right now, about a third of steel is already made through a recycling process that does not require coking coal or, or metallurgic coal. Um, there are no uh, viable 
alternatives online right now, but there is a lot of research into hydrogen as a fuel source for steel making coal uh, and a few other technologies that, um, yep, granted they're not online right now, but, but they are projected in the next 20, 10, 20 years as this mine is coming up um, to potentially be viable alternatives. So I think adding to that sort of economic and commodities risk, we could be coming online for exporting coal at the same time that um, the demand for coking coal is decreasing because we have actually viable technologies. And, and I think the other piece of that is, um, is, is the place we're putting this, this mine. So yeah, we need, we need steel and we need metallurgic coking coal now, um, but we really need to look at the where and the impacts of we're doing that. I don't know that I would say we need those things at all costs. Um, and I think in this case, the costs are pretty high. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. In, in the Old Man River headwaters area, there has been a sudden appearance of locked gates on public land in the last two months, blocking inspections, camping and hunting. <laughs> Comments, please. I, I don't know about, I mean, the, some of those lock gates could or probably um, are the, the, the exploration, the roads built by the coal companies for exploration. Um, some of them could be forestry roads as well um, that are locked uh, for exploration. Uh, I, don't, I don't know particularly where, um, but for sure one of the issues when in those areas when we start building a whole lot of roads and changing how people access the landscape, um, it can it can affect both people's experience, um, but also affect uh, the the ecosystem and the fish and wildlife um, in those areas. So it's a really tricky trade-off when you're talking about industry roads of of the impact of the road, the impact of public use of the road, that how much public access um, we should have because absolutely it's public land and we should have public access on public land um, and finding that that trade-off but I don't know particularly which of those um, areas or whose whose roads those those are our next question comes from Claude Peterson many thanks Katie for your sobering presentation can you talk a bit more about how fish in this case is the canary in the gold mine <clears throat> in the coal mine brother I can, and I love talking about fish. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, fish, especially our native trout, are used as indicators as that canary in the coal mine, and um, which takes on a bit more meaning in this case. But they are uh, a species that are really sensitive to uh, water quality. So uh, they do well in really clean water. Even we see uh, in that region sediment or, or dirt running into streams from motorized use or from logging roads or, or from other activities in that uh, region can affect native fish. So they need really clean, cold water. Um, cold is that next piece. They, they need water that's below about 15 degrees Celsius. Um, as the climate changes, those waters are gonna become fewer and fewer. As we build cold mines that take away those areas or, or change the climate more, those areas will become even uh, less avail available. So fish are actually a really great indicator, not just for themselves and their their um, their ability to exist on the landscape, but for clean water that we use downstream and quantity of water downstream. And I think in this case, 
absolutely the the effects you're seeing um, on fish in the Elk Valley, both the the selenium contamination issue and the fish population collapses. Um, don't say good things about the quality of water for human use uh, in those regions as well. And that's just so important in Southern Alberta. Our next question comes from Lord Schultz. Royalties are paid by ONG companies. Are these mining companies paying Alberta under a similar scheme? It, it's similar but different. And one of the things I'm still uh, actually trying to figure out is um, the original royalty structure was set out uh, in the coal policy. And without a coal policy, I'm still um, trying to get to the bottom of what that royalty structure looks like. Um, but it is a little bit similar in that they pay once the the company builds the mine and is built out and has paid off all of their costs. That is when they start paying royalties. They don't pay royalties for the first few years um, until they've sort of paid off uh, their building costs. But I think one of the uh, threats of that is they could start a smaller mine and keep expanding um, and and then keep having new costs and, and royalties. The royalties are, are quite low um, for coal, I think, particularly given the, the public liability and the public um, environmental and social and health costs that we might see from them. Uh, and so I think that's absolutely a concern around when I talked about um, who, who gets the benefits uh, and and where they where they go. And I, I don't think a lot of the benefits are staying in Alberta, um, which was actually another piece of the coal policy. The, the coal policy clearly stated that uh, that the majority of benefits from coal developments in Alberta should stay in Alberta. So that's another piece that had been lost with the coal policy uh, and makes it much easier for Australian companies to exploit our coal and send it to Asia and we get kind of stuck in the middle. Okay, uh, Lauren Schultz has another question. Are there independent monitoring of drinking water and health of fish species being established or possible? Yeah, there is, I would say there is um, some independent monitoring of fish. Um, some conservation groups uh, like the Alberta Conservation As Association, which is uh, is partially arm's length from the government, um, does some fish monitoring in that area. Uh, and I know there are actually a group of watershed councils um, and other organizations trying to put together a water quality um monitoring program for this region to try and get that baseline data because e even with government monitoring we don't have really good um, baseline data you know multi-year baseline data uh, for all of these areas and, and certainly not for all of the the fish populations um, so uh, baseline data is so important to know that you know if some of these projects are approved that, that we can compare to, to what was happening before. So there are a few initiatives out there um, that exist, and I know a few others coming online, hopefully. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Um, ranchers who have, been, who have grazing leases report that the area north of Cabin Ridge is being logged and fairly torn up. Mm -hmm. Comments, please. Yeah, so we're working um, with those folks as well. Uh, Cabin Ridge is is full into um, 
exploration phase. So they are building all of those roads. I think that that one photo I showed of the of the road uh, going through was was from Cabin Ridge. Um, and I know those folks have been really concerned because a lot of that uh, that building and drilling kind of went on or started at the same time that they were being uh, informed about it. Uh, and they've been really concerned about the the impact on the cattle that are in that area but from a stress perspective and a movement perspective. And I think even from, I know they did um, their gathering uh, of the cattle uh, right now and, and this past weekend. Uh, and I think even folks from a safety perspective, um, as they're out there um, working their cattle and working that range, uh, concerned about uh, the the impacts of of all that industrial activity happening around them. So they're really engaged. Um, it's been really uh, interesting and kind of disheartening for me to see uh, the the way folks who have concerns around that project and other exploration projects have been um, dealt with through the AER. I mentioned some of these approvals happening really quickly. Um, we, uh, as CPAWS, because we don't have any uh, real stake, we don't live there, we're not uh, grazing cattle there, um, none of our submissions have ever actually been uh, accepted as submittable. They, they kind of say, yep, we've addressed your concerns, but also you don't have a stake here, so thank you very much. Um, and I really expected them to treat treat the the ranchers and the leaseholders in there quite differently because they have a very clear uh, interest, uh, economic and livelihood interest in that region. And I think they've had been able to get a little bit more information, but they haven't had any more luck um, actually changing any outcomes uh, of that exploration in the region. Our next question comes from Bev Mundo. With selenium naturally occurring, how is it possible to prove it's from the mining railings and that the levels are dangerous? Yeah, that's um, when it's naturally occurring, it's, it's kept tight in the rock um, and not exposed to that oxygen and water. So it's really when, when that selenium, um, and I think I, I don't remember the exact chemical compositions, but um, when those, those elements are exposed to oxygen and water after being dug up is when they start leaching out of the system. They don't leach at those high concentrations when they are naturally in the rock. Um, so it is, it is really clear. I don't know that there is anyone who is denying that the high selenium concentrations um, in, in other areas that have those problems are a direct result of the coal mining. That is not even something that the coal mines or companies or governments deny. Um, it's more now in the Elk Valley about how do they get it under control. Um, and as I mentioned, they just We have a question by uh, somebody who identifies as AB. 
How do you propose that we produce steel if we cannot mine that coal, the coal? Unless there is a substitute for coal or steel, we need this coal. Are you opposed to all coal mining? Question mark. We need a balance. AB also said that, um, have you, have there been any health studies done to, done on any Canadian coal mining areas? Could there have been something else in those American examples, something in the process that we don't have there? And they also comment, actually, while I, while I have you, they also comment on, um, your comment about uh, selenium this is not true please please research selenium more have there been any health studies done on any canadian coal mining areas Um, Cliff Peterson, as you mentioned, past experiences tell us that resource development generally leaves a mess behind for the public to clean up. Are you aware of any funding guarantees by these companies?
Okay, that was our last question in the um, in the queue. So um, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, and um, I think we had a lot of people on, and I think this was a very good session. Before I end the live stream, is there anything you'd like us to take home from today's presentation? Lovely. Thank you very much. And um, just before we go, we have Brad. Our next week's session, so that's next week, uh, October 8th, we have Mental Illness Awareness Week uh, with Brad Moser. Um, Mental Health and Coping and COVID-19. So we look forward to seeing you then. And thank you very much for your presentation and we'll end the live stream right here. Thank you.